The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Oshua. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and I, I get the pleasure of continuing this series that we've been in, and it's called Renew, and we're on a journey of pursuing emotional and spiritual health. It's a journey of seeking wholeness in our relationships with ourselves, with others, and ultimately with God, and it's a series that we're casting a vision for the future of our church. It's not a grandiose vision of trying to be this amazing, cool church. We're not trying to again fill a huge building. We're not coming to you with great plans of all the things we're going to do. It's not primarily about what we're going to do. It's primarily about who we want to be. We're not trying to orchestrate some great revival. We are just seeking renewal in ourselves. And we believe that the primary way to see transformation in the world is to start with ourselves. Maybe you've heard that, uh, that saying, be the change that you want to see in the world. We think that's pretty wise. Um, and, and honestly, right, we, we look at it, I think we're, we're kind of like the, the plumber, who has leaky faucets in his home, right? We're the, we're the ones that, that are, are so quick to try to change others and not quick to admit that we're not okay ourselves. And so we get busy, caught up helping others. And so this call in this series and our life as a church is individually and corporately to talk about how to become emotionally and spiritually healthy people. And we've been doing that, right? As, as, we, as we work on ourselves, what happens, right? As, as we individually are emotionally and spiritually healthy, that overflows in our community, in our relationships with one another. And then, then what happens is, is if you have an emotionally and spiritually healthy, vibrant, loving community, that's attractive, Right? Emotionally and spiritually renewed people renew other people in their lives. And that, and that transforms our world, our world. And so, just a quick review. Andrew opened our series the last two weeks. The first one, if you weren't there, in our message we talked about healthy self-examination. Right? We, we talked about how we're often blind to those deeper motivations in our hearts and how we don't always see those unhealthy patterns that are there in our lives and the the harmful effects that they have on ourselves and others. And Andrew argued that before we can experience personal renewal, we need to be honest with ourselves so we can actually know the parts of us that need to get renewed. Right? And in fact, practicing healthy self-examination is deeply biblical. In fact, God calls us to do it every week. We read in 1 Corinthians how, 
how communion, taking the Lord's Supper, is a time for self-examination. And so it's a call to begin there. And then the second week, Andrew talked about how a lot of those specific areas in our life that need renewal are actually, we can trace some of those things to our family of origin. We realize that we inherited good and bad things from our parents. And in that message, Andrew took a a good, honest look at what First Peter calls the futile ways that we've inherited from our forefathers. We talked about how having a deeper understanding of our family origin helps us in that self-examination. And we realized, we saw that if we don't take an honest look at the effect that our family has had on us, there's going to be significant blind spots and unaddressed issues in our lives. And then we, in turn, are going to end up passing those on to the next generation. We're going to be, be like what we see in the book of Genesis, which essentially, from a human perspective, is a story of generational sins being passed on again and again from father to son, from mother to daughter. If we're not careful, we will repeat that same story. And so we desperately need renewal, right, in the deepest places of our lives. And then one final connection, if you were here last week on Vision Sunday, we gave that image of how there are church programs that are kind of like trellises, right? And a vine, the, the growth of the vine is, is you and me. It's us being transformed. To connect to that idea, we, we can't spend all our time working on programs and structures and trellises if our vine over here is malnourished and diseased, right? We need to pour life and cultivation and healing into that vine and let it get, grow and be maturing before we We fiddle with our trellises. So let's pray together as we begin this series and we jump into that process of renewal. As we begin, we saw why we need it, and now we're going to begin seeking it together. Let's pray. Jesus, we we long to be made new. Uh, Romans 12 calls us to not be conformed to this this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. God, would you do that in our lives, transform our minds, transform the, the desires of our hearts, uh, that, we, that we would be made new in the deepest places of us, those places that, that we have not re- yet released to you and opened up to you. God, would you open those doors of our hearts, and would you come in like that, that powerful song we sang, and then you would come and, and break down those walls and shine light in those dark places. So come, Lord Jesus, we give you permission to do that today. In your name, amen. Okay, so we're going to be looking at Isaiah 30. And we're going to see that we actually have a lot in common with the people of Israel uh, in this scripture. So the context is Israel is full of anxiety and fear. That they're worried about the attacks of the Assyrian Empire. Okay? And, and what they're doing, and you, you can see at the beginning of Isaiah 30, is that they're running to an old friend, right? They're running back to Egypt and seeking their political and military protection, right? And they're also making idols, right? They're, they're finding their, their physical and their political security in Egypt, and then they're finding their spiritual uh, and emotional security in these idols rather than God. And God invites them to come to him for protection, for safety, for peace, 
But instead, what do they do? You see it in verse 16, right? What do they do? They don't go to God for rest. Instead, it says, no, we will flee on horses. They're going to strive. They're going to fight. They're going to they're run to Egypt instead of going to God. God invites them to rest in him. Instead, they run and strive and work to accomplish their own salvation. God invites them to a place of just quiet and in trust. And instead, they surround themselves with noise, activity, and war. Right? And they're, look who they're going back to. They're going back to someone familiar, someone they know. They're going back to Egypt. Their ancestors, their forefathers, lived in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. Right? In Egypt, they were slaves, but at least they were safe. They were comfortably numb living in slavery. And now they're returning to that slave master that they know so well. So I, I ask myself that question, I ask us, which ways do we refuse God's rest today, right? In which ways we, do we avoid that quietness that he offers and instead strive in our own strength? And who are those slave masters that we return to because we know them best? So one of the clearest examples that I know, I think of, is this little thing right here. I had this fear. It actually happened. I was prepping my sermon. Um, I said, Assyria. And I'm like, oh no, I'm going to say that. And everyone's, hey, Siri is going to go off, including my own. And that would just be bad. So, but it's, it's these things. This is what comes to mind and of, our, of our horses, of how we flee. And I've been on a personal journey this last year of understanding the ways that I hide from intimacy with God and with others through my distraction, with my devices. And more and more, scientists and social commentators are realizing the harmful effects that our mobile devices have on us, right? There's now a, a growing industry of digital wellness services. Digital wellness services. A recent New York Times article describes one journalist's experience going through a 30-day detox from his iPhone, okay? So, there's this little screen time feature, and it tells you your report each week, like how you've done. So he would pick up his phone over a hundred times a day and spend more than five and a half hours on it every day. And the article tells the journey of him going through this technological detox, almost like he's getting off an opium addiction. Serious, okay? Literally, his his digital wellness coach had him put his phone when he got home in a locked safe, a little mini safe. He would put the phone in there, close it, and turn the key and like give the key to his wife. It's that bad. So here's, I've got a couple quotes from this. This is very telling. So this is from that, the New York Times article called Do Not Disturb, How I Ditched My Phone and Unbroke My Brain. He says, mostly, this is this, this self-awareness, okay, that he's gaining through this. Mostly, I became aware of how profoundly uncomfortable I am with stillness. For years, I've used my phone every time I've had a spare moment in an elevator or a boring meeting. I listen to podcasts and write emails on the subway. I watch YouTube videos while folding laundry. I even use an app to pretend to meditate. 
he realized that if he was going to repair his brain, he needed to practice doing nothing. So he talks about how hard it, that was for him. He says, it's an unnerving sensation being alone with your thoughts in the year 2019. Imagine that. My digital wellness coach had warned me that I might feel existential malaise when I wasn't distracting myself with my phone. She also said paying more attention to my surroundings would make me realize how many other people use their phones to cope with boredom and anxiety. Once you look around the elevator and see the zombies checking their phones, you can't unsee it. Isn't that true? Here's a question. What do these pictures have in common? Look at those pictures. What do you see? People on their phones and people in front of slot machines. Tristan Harris is an advocate for digital, digital ethics, and he worked for a time at the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, where app designers learn techniques for getting our attention. Okay? It's scientific. And he explains that there's a mind vulnerability called the variable schedule reward. This is the same vulnerability that hooks people on slot machines. Yeah, you know what those are, right? Slot machines. They're, slot machines make more money in the U.S. than baseball, movies, and theme parks combined. And the addictive power of a slot machine is two to three times faster than any other kind of gambling. The more random the reward instances are with that slot machine, the more addicting it is. And Tristan Harris says that, that the app companies take advantage of this same brain vulnerability, and they have literally turned our phones into little slot machines. Facebook, email, news, Instagram, each swipe, each scroll is a pull of the slot machine that rewards us with a little dopamine rush of new information, beautiful pictures, or, oh, they like me, they like me, relational affirmation. We literally have little slot machines in our pockets. And we wonder why we have such a hard time being silent and resting in God. We have a hard time letting His Spirit speak to us about what is going on inside our hearts because we fill all of our downtime with noise. For many of us, our phones are those horses that we flee on. We're running from God, and we're running from ourselves. So what's the result of this? What's the result of this widespread cultural addiction to distraction? I think two things come immediately to mind. One is our epidemic of anxiety, and the second is our epidemic of loneliness. And we see these two effects in Isaiah 30. If you look at verse 17, look at the effects. So they're, they're running away from God. They're, they're pursuing their own strength and salvation. And then verse 17, it says, A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee. Till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. The people of Israel worked and strove so they could be strong and prepared for when the Assyrians would attack, right? And they thought going to Egypt would make them strong and protect them. But instead, what did they have? Fear and anxiety, right? In fact, 
they have this irrational fear of their enemy that's almost like an anxiety disorder. It says that, that right, a thousand will flee at the threat of one enemy, right? Or, or the whole nation will flee at the threat of five. That's an uncontrollable, irrational fear, right? And then this, this anxiety leads to isolation, loneliness, and vulnerability. It says, and you will, you will run away, right? You'll flee, and then you're going to be like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill, up there for all to see, alone and vulnerable, living in fear and anxiety, always worried that the kingdom that they have built for themselves, themselves is going to collapse upon them. Is that not a description of our culture? Right, where we've refused to rest in God and we're just full of anxiety in our, our political sphere and our social sphere and our relationships and our workplaces. Listen to this. Well, I'm going to just do some social commentary this morning. Here's another article I found. This is from the New Republic, an article that came out just a, uh, this last month called The Age of Anxiety. Listen to this. America seems to be in the midst of a full-blown panic attack. Right? The article goes on and it says, it gives these statistics. According to the studies by the National Institute of Mental Health, nearly 20% of Americans experience an anxiety disorder in a given year. Over 30% experience an anxiety disorder over the course of their lifetimes. And the rate is rising. The American Psychiatric Association, in a May study drawing from a survey of 1,000 adult Americans, diagnosed a statistically significant increase in national anxiety since 2017. And additionally, the anxiety rate of, among millennials is nearly double that of any other age group. It is so bad. Get this. This blew my mind. One of the hottest gifts of 2018, and don't have to, don't have to confess if it was on your, your uh, wish list, but one of the hottest gifts of the holiday season this last year were weighted blankets. Okay? Do you know what these are? Okay, these are essentially adult swaddle blankets, okay? These are adult swaddle blankets. They were originally designed for people with autism or PTSD, okay? And now it's a thing. Like, it was one of the, the top gifts of the holiday season. Do you have too much anxiety? Do you have a hard time sleeping at night? Get an adult swaddle blanket, right? It, it embraces you like a constant warm hug. No more tossing and turning. You can sleep at peace because you're swaddled. Right? We're in the midst of this, this epidemic of anxiety. Right? That's the reality. And, and where the younger generation is, is full of anxiety, we also have the highest rate of loneliness among the older generations. So, now I'm going to quote the Wall Street Journal from an article from this last December called The Loneliest Generation. Americans more than ever are, are aging alone. Baby boomers are aging alone more than any generation in U.S. history. And the resulting loneliness is a looming public health threat. About one in 11 Americans age 50 and older lacks a spouse, partner, or living child. That amounts to about 8 million people in the U.S. without close kin. Researchers have found that loneliness takes a physical toll. 
and is as closely linked to early mortality as, get this, as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day or consuming more than six alcoholic drinks a day. Loneliness is even worse for longevity than being obese or physically inactive. It's dangerous to be lonely. The final quote, baby boomers prized individuality and generally had fewer children and ended marriages in greater numbers than previous generations. More than one in four boomers is divorced or never married. About one in six lives alone. This might be hard to hear, but in many ways, the baby boomers are now experiencing the hangover from their intoxication of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. Sure, it was a lot of fun back then to throw out the restraints of marriage and and a biblical sexual ethic. And now they're waking up with the hangover of loneliness and vulnerability. And so, in many ways, our nation, we're like the people of Israel in this passage, where we've refused the rest that God promises. We've run from Him, and now we're dealing with our anxiety, our fear, our loneliness. And here's what we see. In these articles, we see that the secular culture is able to self-critique, right? We all know, okay, we're distracted, we're anxious, we're lonely, and we're doing it to ourselves. We realize that. But the secular culture has no solution. We cannot fix ourselves with the same consumeristic, man-centered worldview that got us into this mess. We need something completely different. And that brings us to this life-changing message of the gospel that we see in Isaiah 30. In this passage, we have an invitation from God to be renewed and to experience that renewal. And these are those paths to renewal that we're going to see in this passage and talk through. The first is rest and silence, then meditation and listening, and finally, confession and repentance. So, rest and silence. This is where this path to renewal begins. And we see it in this passage, right? In verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and in trust shall be your strength. The words for rest and quietness carry two ideas. One is the absence of activity, and the second is the presence of security and tranquility. The word for rest, it has the same root as the name Noah, right, from the book of Genesis, and that gives us some insight into the word. Genesis 5.29 just says this, he called his name Noah, saying, out of the, the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And so this gospel rest that God invites us to is to experience the lifting of the curse, right? And the removal of of the noise and chaos of this world and to finally be still, to finally rest. Does that sound amazing to you? Stillness, rest, tranquility, 
so that even if the world is crazy busy around us, inside is rest and peace. Did you know that practicing rest is actually a Christian discipline? Right? If you're not familiar with this idea of, what a, of the spiritual discipline, here's just a basic definition. Spiritual discipline is a formative habit given by God to renew our minds and train our hearts to enjoy God and to love people. Spiritual discipline is a formative habit given by God to renew our minds and train our hearts to enjoy God and to love people. So the path that God has laid for us in pursuing this renewal is the path of the spiritual disciplines. And for centuries, Christians have purposely taken a time each week to rest. They have taken seasons to leave the busyness of their lives and get alone with God and to find refreshment for their bodies and their souls. And when we stop and we rest, we're agreeing with God that He alone can bring victory. That He alone keeps the world turning and He alone is the one who provides for our needs. And then when we build these, these habits, right, these of patterns of rest and Sabbath and solitude in our lives, we finally have the time to face our shame, to face our fears or our doubts. For many of us, that means, right, turning off our phones, right, turning off the TV. It's so funny. In that article about the guy with the smartphone, he literally, he had a, a 48-hour, like, time where he had to turn off his phone. And he's like, I felt like Thoreau. You know Thoreau from Walden where he ran away into the woods? 48 hours without your phone, you're not Thoreau, right? (laughs) But that's what it can feel like, right? So in this sacred space where we set aside these other things, we go there to meet with God, to be honest with ourselves and be honest with Him. We stop running and we start waiting. Look at verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. God is waiting to be gracious to you. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for you to stop running and to begin waiting for him. If you're anything like me, like me this takes time, doesn't it? If I get alone in a quiet place with just my journal and my Bible, it takes a while for my mind to slow down, right? In fact, for me, I need to have a to-do list. If it's it's a phone, it doesn't work because it's got other things, right? I just need a piece of paper with a to-do list. Okay, why do I take a to-do list to my quiet time? Because as I'm trying to pray and stop like my mind, I think of things, right? And I can't forget them because they're important things I have to do. So I write them down. Oh, now I can forget about it. Oh, another thing. I write it down. Now I can. Okay, after I've listed out the 25 things, okay, I set it aside. It takes time, right, to practice this discipline of rest and, and quietness. Right? My brain's like an overdrive, and I gotta downshift, I have to slow down. And then I stop worrying about things. I stop wanting to check my phone. And I begin to reflect and pray. 
It's been a long process for me in learning this, and um, I wanted to share this. I, I, I felt like um, Andrew's uh, very, very honest and vulnerable sharing uh, was really fruitful for us uh, and sets a good example. So I, I want to share a little bit with you of this journey for me. This last summer, I, I took some time to write out a prayer to God about these feelings of anxiety and this, this busyness in my heart and my desire to learn to be quiet and pray. And I want to I share some of that, that, that prayer. Okay? This is what I wrote. You know how things once were when life was simpler and laissez-faire, before kids, a wife, and the constant interruptions of his beautiful mess. By the way, I have a wife and six kids. We're expecting number seven, ages two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve. My home is a beautiful mess, okay? This chaotic, this chaotic cacophony of filial joy that I call home. I once could create structures and rhythms that provided guidance and consistency for my erratic and spontaneous tendencies. I would rise faithfully in the morning before the responsibilities of the day, and I would meditate on your book. I would pray slowly over the words and present to you the needs of my day. I would climb the crags and crevices of your revelation and pass through the cloud of unknowing to stand atop the peaks of your glory. And from that peak, I would gaze still farther out at the towering mountain range stretched from horizon to horizon, an expanse of expanse. And I would not leave that place until my breath was taken away, until I glimpsed a weight of glory, until I heard your voice whispering in the wind, until I felt your kiss upon my cheek. And I would lay my head down upon that rock, I would release my grip on all that I try to control. I would stop running, my laboring, my deceiving and being deceived, and I would lay it all down upon that rock and wait for you to open heaven. And you would. That air breathed so deeply, the freedom, my arms outstretched to heaven, the vision clear and pure, that life everlasting and abundant. You say to remember, but this memory, it's like an echo lost in the wind. It's the name I cannot place, the dream just beyond my reach to recall. Now it seems that all I know is the frenetic. I am productive and professional. I check the boxes and cross my T's. I know my responsibilities. I am admired and acknowledged. I am propped up like a stage play. I act the part. But these props aren't real. I am not a man of prayer. I only play one on TV. You see my soul. You see those ancient paths to Zion now overgrown and oft forgotten. New highways have been paved, wide and smooth, fast and efficient. These highways of my day take me from one task to the next, managing needs and doing your work. Yes, Lord, this is for you. I am laboring and toiling in this valley, the lowlands of my soul, for you. Are you pleased? I have no time for mountain climbing. There are projects to complete, but these deadlines are killing me. 
just a little bit from my, my heart and my prayer to God. So how do we find rest? We need it. That's second. So there's that path of renewal, rest and silence. Next is meditation and listening. Look again in Isaiah 30. We see it in 19 to 21. For a people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. So in that quiet place, in that place of just being with God, we cry out to him. And that very act of stopping, right, we're turning from our vain works and confessing to God that you alone are our strength, that he alone provides for us and our families. And then it says, we cry out, we ask him, would you meet us in this place? Come and comfort us, heal me, give me rest. And he does, right? Even in the midst of, it, of affliction, of, of adversity, of challenge, he promises to hear us and answer us. And look, look, look there. Look at how he promises to meet us. How does he do it? It says, he comes to us as our teacher. He will speak to us and say, this is the way, walk in it. And this is why our second path to renewal is the practice of meditation and listening. Christ comes to us with his teaching that has the power to transform and renew us to give us rest, right? Meditation and listening. It's the practice of opening up our minds and our hearts to receive from Christ. And this passage, right, is prophetically speaking of Jesus. Your eyes will see him. Your ears will hear his voice. Jesus walked among us, God in the flesh. And it's fulfilled. We see it. We see, hear his very words in the Gospels. We have his Holy Spirit speaking to us, guiding us. Through these phones of ours, we have almost instantaneous, instantaneous access to the entirety of human learning, right? It's just there. Everything we know. You can keep up to date on whatever you want to follow. You can be a student of almost any teacher in the world, right? But we have an embarrassment of riches. We, have we understand nothing because we think we can know anything. And here's Jesus stretching out his, saying, his hands saying, I want to be your teacher. Come to me and learn from me. You will find rest for your souls. You will at last understand yourself, not through the eyes of the world, not, not through the eyes of your parents. You will begin to see yourself as I see you, holy and beloved. We need this. In January, we invited the church to read the Bible with us. We're going through a program uh, called Read Scripture. It's a plan put together by the Bible Project. Basically, we're just we're reading about three chapters a day, and we're meditating on a psalm. 
And then interspersed throughout that are some of the videos, right? The Bible Project animation videos that introduce you to different themes or books of the Bible. So once we've, we've carved out that space, we have time then to meditate on Scripture and listen to the Spirit. And what happens is, is we begin to see the stories of our lives interwoven in the story of the Bible. We, right? we stop reading the Bible and pointing the fingers at others. See the problems? Yeah, yeah, if only they believe this. And we let the Spirit speak to our hearts. Now I want you to, to notice something, because I think you might misunderstand me when I say meditation on the Scriptures. This spiritual discipline is not mere Bible study. Okay? It's not mere Bible study. The goal of Bible study is to understand what the Bible teaches. Right? The spiritual discipline of meditation is more. The goal of Bible study is to understand the Bible, and that's important, but you can't stop there. Once we have studied and understood what the Bible is saying, we need to move into that place of meditation. The goal of meditation is to sense the reality and truth in our hearts. You see the difference? Study tries to understand. We need that. But meditation seeks to sense and feel and ultimately to commune with God. Study will lead to greater understanding, but meditation leads to worship and to prayer. And it's in that place of meditation that God begins to show us those hidden dark areas in our hearts that need renewal. That brings us to that third path of renewal, confession and repentance. Look again at verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Another way to translate that word returning is repentance. Or in verse 22, we see this. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. In our culture, it's a huge step just to stop, just to rest, to get at the feet of Jesus to learn from him. But we can't stop there. We need to turn from our strivings and our desire to control everything. We rest in Christ. And then as we do that, as we meditate, we begin to see those slave masters that we are still serving. Right? We cannot rest in Christ if we're still serving slave masters. And as we meditate on the Word, as we let the Spirit speak to us, He begins to uproot from our hearts those carved idols that we love so dearly. Think about that image with me for a moment in verse 22. Right? These carved idols overlaid with silver and gold. We don't make idols out of ugly things, do we? They're beautiful and attractive. They excite our hearts and they numb our pain. Silver and gold is valuable, isn't it? We make our idols out of valuable things. They are valuable to us, and we guard and protect them with our lives, and we fight against anyone that would dare get in the way of them. 
We sacrifice valuable things to them, even priceless things, even our children. We lay at their altars. And we make them ourselves, don't we, with our own hands. And we begin to find our identity in them. And they're images. They reflect something. Just like we are made, right, in the the image of God, we reflect His greater glory. So these idols that we make reflect a greater glory. They are a good thing perverted and deified into an ultimate thing. And what happens is we get alone with God. He shows them to us. He opens our eyes to see them. And we see them as they really are, as filth. Something precious to something filthy. This word for unclean or filth is the word that refers to menstrual rags, which in the Hebrew mind symbolized death. Right? This is something, right? This, this flow is something that has the potential for life, for a baby, for offspring. But when it is not that, it instead symbolizes death. The thing that was life now must be thrown away, must be gotten rid of. In the same way, we begin to see these precious things that we loved as filth, as something that brought us death. And we cast it away from us, vowing never to pick it up again. So in closing, here's the truth that we need to hear. Having an honest self-awareness, right, and being able to cast away the destructive idols and those patterns that we inherited from our families of origin, it doesn't just happen. (laughs) We can't white-knuckle it and change ourselves. We can't just make our anxiety go away. We can't just cure our loneliness. But there is a path to transformation that God has set before us. A path to renewal. It's a path that begins with rest and silence. It continues in meditation and listening and then overflows in confession and repentance. And as we practice these formative habits over and over again in rhythms, over time our mind will be renewed and our hearts will be trained to be a people of rest and a a people who give rest to others. And so I'm going to close in prayer, but I'm going to, I'm going to close in prayer from that, the prayer that I, I read before that I wrote this last summer, um, and just the last portion of it. Um, and I'd ask that you even close your eyes and try to picture it and try to picture yourself. And I'd ask that you would pray this with me. How will I return, O Lord? How will you blaze again the pathways to Zion in my soul? What can I do? I will arise and go to you. I will rip these vines up, gnarled and mangled, constricting and constrained. I see it now. I am surrounded by jungle, exhausted and claustrophobic, accosted and asphyxiated, disoriented and without a compass. 
Invasive growth represses the heavens above and buries the ancient path below. Then I stop. Finally, I stop. I wait. And ever so slightly, I hear it. A faint giggle, a laugh, a playful dancing. I drop to my knees and crawl towards the melody. A stream greets me, cool, clear, alive. It has worn a path through the labyrinth of this knotted gut, this barren ego, this valley of Baca. On my knees I drink. I drink my anxious fears away. And then finally I follow it, your path. Though the way is shrouded and overgrown from neglect, hope, a glimmer of hope, not in my knowledge of the way, not in my memory of the trail, but in the source of that stream. Though it is here, but a faint trickle, it is joined to the mighty waters. It has leapt upon the heights and roared down your cliffs. And so I follow this ancient road, one that you have laid, not of my own making, not the work of my hands, not the labor of my back bent and hunched, but a causeway cut at Calvary. Arteries gushing, streams pulsing, a torrential flood piercing through the cold stone I call a heart. Cascading falls, ever searching, hunting for the depths, down lower still to the deepest places. In the dark catacombs where I hide, the place of trepidation, deprivation, asphyxiation, there you find me. A scarlet rope reaches down into my starless habitat and draws me up through the event horizon of this black hole of a soul. Dawn breaks in glory and this ravenous longing is satisfied. I pass through the haze and there I behold your waterfalls upon the cliffs of the Lord, the fountain drawn from your veins. You beckon me to ascend to climb the mighty mountain, to leave the safety of my concrete prison of productivity. My soul clings to you as I scale the cliffs. Your right hand upholds me and lifts me to the heights. Over the crags and through the clouds I rise. You inhabit me, and my night becomes as light to you. Heaven unfurls, my heart untangles, and I am home. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.